everyone, and welcome back to the Bridgehead at 5.30 a.m. at 1.30 p.m. Welcome back. It's been a couple of weeks since uh, we aired a new interview because of, you know, the busyness of the holidays. I hope uh, you and yours have been keeping well. We have, a, we have a pretty exciting discussion today. It was more of a discussion than an interview, to be completely honest with you. One of the, the foremost voices in, in Canadian column writing is, is Barbara Kay. She writes very insightful columns on a wide range of topics, and one of the things that really highlights her style is that regardless of whether or not she agrees with somebody, she does take a very serious look at their position, and she does you know, analyze what they have to say rationally and calmly as opposed to getting extraordinarily hysterical like you know, many of the pro-choice feminists tend to do. So I, I'd read a couple of her columns on abortion, and I decided that I'd like to have a conversation with her so we could you know, exchange our views and, and chat about abortion a little bit and see what, what her take was on everything because... While she does consider herself a pro-choice feminist, at the same time, her views are not even remotely in the same camp as those of the pro-choice feminists here in Canada. And she thinks that a discussion on abortion in Canada is very necessary and would be very healthy for our democracy. I hope you enjoy the discussion as much as I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Barbara Kay. So my first question is, for a columnist who considers herself pro-choice, uh, you've dedicated a significant number of words to the abortion issue. Why is that? Well, although I believe that abortion should be illegal, and although I did not come to this issue from a religious perspective, I do feel that the, the lack of an abortion law, the lack of any regulation, which uh, this vacuum uh, in this in this. Uh, uh, issue, mm -hmm. we have that because of ideology and not uh, for any reason that has to do with the, the procedure itself. This is, a, for me, a public health issue, right? as well as a, an emotional and a psychological and a, and a moral issue. Uh, I find it unethical to allow women to be undergoing a procedure that can have consequences in their life mm -hmm. uh, without informed consent to it, uh, simply on the basis that you don't want to prevent uh, them taking this decision because it doesn't look good for your movement or it doesn't look good for your ideology. Mm -hmm. Then women say to themselves, gee, I'd like to, uh, I'd like a little more balance in, in, you know, the information I'm getting regarding this procedure and I'd like to hear from all sides and I'll make the decision based on what's good for me. Right. People in the pro-choice movement want the woman to make a decision that is good for their movement. And when ideology enters the picture and women's health or potential health consequences are being ignored so that the numbers look good or that, uh, God forbid, you know, the woman should do something that's the slightest bit inconvenient to her uh, and make it look as though she cares more about uh, the unborn child than she does about herself, uh, this doesn't look good for their movement. Mm -hmm. That bothers me a great deal. I don't like ideology in any case. I think, uh, I think the promotion of uh, action based in ideology rather than simply examining situations and, and making informed uh, decisions on the basis of what you consider to be right or wrong public. We're talking about public policy, of course. I'm not talking right. about in your personal life. You, you, know, you, may, you may make decisions based on all kinds of religious or ideological reasons, but we're, we're talking about public policy here. Right. And ideology should not be guiding public policy. 
So you would be more supportive of groups like We Need a Law who are seeking to uh, to, to get restrictions. Yeah, we, yeah exactly. We, uh, uh, I, I am sympathetic to women who, through no fault of their own uh, or through accident or, you know, have got themselves into a, a bind and uh, it's actually going to have a serious consequence for their life. Uh, it, it's going to be life-changing uh, in a very negative way for them or that's their perception. I... I I am sympathetic to that. Uh, you know, I think a girl of 14 or 15 <laughs> stuck in this situation, I, I understand what's mm -hmm. on her mind. But I find it uh, makes me very uneasy that this idea, uh, any woman, any time, any, you know, for any reason, uh, to just possibly because it's an inconvenience to a married woman to have another baby, say, too soon after the first one. Mm -hmm. That to me is, is, is kind of not a very good reason to a, right. a child, you know, and, and and so I think there are gradations of seriousness. I I don't deny that a conceived child is a human life from the very first second. I'm not denying the actual scientific uh, rudiments, you know, of of the evolution of of a of a fetus and a baby. I, I understand all that. Right. And yet, at the same time, I think. Uh, what it comes down to is sometimes there is a kind of survival mechanism going on, like it's either me or this, you know, this unwanted child. And I do think our perceptions as human beings of uh, babies at different stages of conception are are different. We have a different conception of a, a an eight-week fetus than we do from, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, even if it's fully formed and ready to be delivered. I mean, there, there is a difference uh, psychologically, and also I think we're influenced by the fact that nature, nature itself, is extremely, seems to be extremely indifferent to human life in the sense that uh, miscarriages happen all the time, you mm -hmm. know, and uh, for those who believe that every human life is precious from conception forward, uh, that's a kind of mystery, isn't it? That even right. That yeah, I mean, but, but, but even moving beyond some of the bumper sticker slogans like life is precious and, and a lot of these sayings that are really sort of obscure and vague, actually, when you really think about them. Um, you know, I don't, I don't come at this, you know, from an explicitly religious position either. For me, it, it's this very simple formula that goes, you know, human beings have human rights and the human rights have to begin when the human being begins or we're just sort of picking an arbitrary point at which we think human beings get human rights. What would you say to something like that? fact that uh, there's a difference between the human rights as a, uh, a kind of unitary phenomenon mm -hmm. and human and, and legal right in my own religion uh, it's very interesting there's very very I'm Jewish and there's very little written about abortion there's nothing in the Old Testament right about abortion so I find that in itself very interesting the rabbis the sages did not offer legal protections to a child until it was 30 days old. In other words, if a baby was born and died within the first week or two, you didn't have a ritual funeral for that child because it had not yet achieved legal personhood. Mm -hmm. However, if anyone murdered uh, a born baby, they would still be a murderer. That would, they would still right. be a criminal. They would still be a criminal trial. So I, so I think there, there are these kinds of shades of difference between when does child, uh, when does an unborn child achieve legal status? So I think I would make that distinction, uh, and yeah. I could sort of see the first trimester as being, this is the mother making the decision herself, one way or the other, and 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 that can't be 
criminal activity. It just can't be, it, and it should be permitted. That's where I draw the line. And then, and then of course, you have the whole issue of um, birth defects. Right. Yeah, and that's a tough one because you don't find those out until the 19th week, right? You know, you. I think uh, amniocentesis is done... Well, by birth defects, I assume you're including Down syndrome in that list. Well, yeah, we're talking about things like Down syndrome or many other, many other, uh, you know, birth deficits or or possible birth deficits. Sometimes they're wrong, by the way. Sometimes women are told your baby is going to be born with something, and they decide to go ahead anyway, and the baby is born fine. So you know, there mm -hmm. are. <laughs> that's another uh, ethical conundrum. But if women feel that having a child with a deficit is going to be an intolerable burden, not only to her, but also to, say, a family that she already has, is a full-time job for her, you know, she already has two or three children. Um, again, I, I'm reluctant, reluctant to lay down the law and say, you know, people with disabilities have the same human rights as everybody else. Well, I do believe that when they're born disabled or, but again, I don't set myself up as, as somebody who who has the solution to all mm. these problems. What I, what I mostly write about is my irritation with the fact that you're not allowed to discuss these things or right. that it's considered anti-woman um, to even bring up these thorny issues. Right. You've written about that quite a bit, especially recently when when a uh, member of parliament, Mark Werewa's motion was shut down and things like that. But there seems to have been a split recently among, among pro-choice feminists on how to really deal with this abortion issue. We've got feminists like Naomi Wolf, um, who wrote in an essay called Our Bodies, Our Souls, you know, some time ago, I believe it was in... Uh, not, not Atlantic, uh, some some more left-wing magazine, and she was she had basically written the Nation, I believe it was, and she she wrote that, you know, they, that each each abortion should be considered the solemn passing of a human life, and then on the flip side, you've got, you know, Joyce Arthur of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, who would you know equate this this type of thing to brushing your teeth. So, there seems to be a struggle with inside the pro-choice movement. Yes, and there has to be more of a struggle each time that we find out something new that we didn't know before. When the pro-choice movement started, things seemed very black and white to them. Right. Uh, you know, you're, it was this blob of tissue idea that until a, you know, a baby was in the fourth or fifth month, it was, it was nothing. It was, it was a bunch of cells, and, and uh, there was nothing to think about. Then along came ultrasound, and oh my gosh, you know, here's this eight-week-old fetus that looks exactly like a miniature human being. Well... You know, to a lot of mothers, that's a big shock. Like, they, it's not a blob of tissues. It's, it's this little tiny human being. Yeah. And uh, so that changed a lot of minds, and or at least made a lot of people think twice. And, and, and then, of course, we saw the abuses of unregulated abortion with uh, sex selection abortion, which is, uh, you know, morally a very, very disturbing phenomenon that perfectly healthy uh, unborn babies are being culled, you know, as if, like, you would cull a wolf herd or, or, or right. a rabbits or something like that. So this is, this is something, and, and it has worldwide implications because in many countries there is such a serious imbalance in the ratio between born boys and born girls um, that you, you have problems down the road, social problems uh, and sometimes problems of violence and, and a real disruption of society. So th there's that to think about, too. And then, of course, there are all these physical consequences, health consequences that yeah. certainly were unknown 
30 years ago, and, and uh, the one in particular that disturbs me is the settled science of the relationship between induced abortion and the much higher risk of premature birth in a following pregnancy, Right. which brings its own risks for deficits like autism, blindness, uh, and cerebral palsy. Right. And one researcher estimates that, uh, you know, we have, I forget how many thousands of, of babies born with cerebral palsy, but of them, about 10% of them can be traced back to one or more, usually more, uh, abortion, induced abortions in the past. Well, uh, cerebral palsy is a terrible, terrible um, illness, a syndrome, whatever it is, and, and uh, uh, causes the state, uh, it costs the state a great deal to take care of such children, and it's a misery to the parents and a misery to the child. Well, if you knew that you could significantly reduce the risk of doing that, that you know, wouldn't you consider that something to take into consideration and something you'd want to be told by an abortion doctor before having the abortion? Right. Or uh, the increasing evidence for the very strong link uh, between induced abortion and breast cancer mm -hmm. uh, later in life. Now, these to me, I mean, if you were taking a medication and your doctor didn't tell you, oh, this may cause difficulty or it may increase your risk of blood clotting or it may, you know, wouldn't you want to weigh, you know, if you didn't really need that medication so very badly? Wouldn't that be something you would take into consideration? Right, very true, and it's interesting on the on the breast cancer um, on issue. Like I, I, as a pro-lifer, rarely use that that to argue. I'm not I'm not opposed to abortion because it causes breast cancer. I'm opposed to abortion because, you know, it ends the life of a human being, as I, as I said previously. But there's something about that breast cancer argument that seems to to really really anger pro-choice people for a reason that has always sort of eluded me. And I noticed that you wrote about this breast cancer abortion link in in I think your most recent column on abortion, hard truth about abortion. What sort of reaction did you get to that column? Well, I didn't get tremendous uh, feedback in my email. One of the reasons I don't anymore uh, is because the feminists or the, the hardcore pro-choicers don't even read me. I mean, they, they uh, on Twitter, I got, <laughs> I got some very negative reaction on Twitter. Uh, you mm. know, they just say she must be insane. I mean, they, they, it's it's so far off their radar to consider that uh, women should should be warned about this kind of thing and, and that it should in any way interfere with their choice, uh, that anybody that suggests that to them uh, is anti-woman. You know, I would get remarks on Twitter like, why does Barbara Kay hate women so much? Right, for point. I, mean, well, I have no answer for that. I think I, I, I care about women. <laughs> That's why uh, I want to see them have informed consent before they do this. So I, I don't think I'm the one that hates women. I, I think that these ideologues uh, think of women as uh, kind of objects, you know, statistics, uh, people that, that are simply part of a, the, the bigger picture of, of uh, moving the revolution forward. You know, they're kind of pawns in the game of, of uh, uh, the feminist revolution. So, right, well, I don't but that's, that's, that's it's always been and sort of mysterious to me. Like, if we don't ascribe deliberately insidious motives to people like Joyce Arthur, and, and some of them, I think, do have more insidious motives, and some of them do not, why would they be taking such an extreme line as opposed to, to you know, the positions of, of people like Naomi Wolf and say, we can't talk about anything that, that 
in any way, shape, or form changes your opinion on abortion. Because if you if you look at it, abortion is going to have an impact. You're interrupting a natural process. So whether or not you morally oppose or morally support that procedure, there's going to be some sort of natural reaction to the action that you're undertaking. So it seems to me sort of bizarre and absurd that they would deny that there are at least, you know, some bare minimum consequences to that action. Well, I, I agree with you, and I, I would... I that if it were any other kind of surgical intervention, and you said to them, gee, I understand they're doing uh, appendectomies without mentioning the fact that, you know, it, it tends to put on weight after, I mean, you know, something as stupid, or, or cosmetic surgery. Right. When you get cosmetic surgery, for example, if you're getting a facelift, you say to the doctor, what are the risks? And they may, and they will tell you, they will say, well, there is a slight risk that you will uh, paralyze the nerve in your cheek. Um, and you may have, you know, uh, some numbness there uh, permanently or, or temporarily. Well, fine. Okay. That's, I'm glad I know that risk. But, you know, he'll say the risk is very, very tiny and blah, blah, blah. And you either go ahead or you don't. And, and I think they would say that was a fair risk to know because... Uh, it has to do with your own person, right? And your own, you know, your own looks, your own uh, well-being. But the fact that they don't want women to know about risks, you know, that are associated with with um, abortion, I, I strikes me as I can't explain it in any other way except to say that uh, ideology is more important to them than women's health. So who hates women? I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's me. Right. Yeah. That's. It, well, it's always been. Yeah. It's always been sort of a very confusing argument to me because the split among feminist ranks is so distinct. There's the, you know, the take no prisoners. Every abortion is a good abortion, and and we can't discuss anything surrounding that issue that are very hard to talk to. And I debate students on university campuses a lot, and it's usually fairly easy to find common ground with everybody you're talking to, and we can always make headway and and discuss each other's views. But you get the people like Joyce Arthur who say, well, debating a pro-lifer is like debating a Nazi or, or things like that, and they just... That's it. I mean, these people are not interested in debate. They're, they're interested in shutting you up. So anyone who wants to put, like David Suzuki, who wants to put people who deny uh, global warming into jail, anyone right. who, who uh, would deny freedom of speech to somebody on the basis of uh, a difference of opinion to me is somebody that is unworthy even of consideration to be in the debate. Right. Uh, but because our, you know, institutes of higher learning are dominated by ideologues who feel they have the truth, who feel they have the moral truth, uh, and when you feel you have the moral high ground, they also feel that gives you the right to uh, kill discourse that opposes. Well, I mean, when you feel you have the truth, you see everybody else as uh, pushing lies, you know, as... as telling lies, and that, that is morally uh, indefensible, uh, so it justifies speech codes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to eliminate your intellectual opposition. But this, this to me, is a kind of cancer in the universities uh, to, to, to shut down this kind of discourse, and yet they feel perfectly free to say all kinds of things about men um, that would be very offensive right. to them if they were said about women, uh, and they assert many things about men that simply, as a group, that may be true of a few men, but are certainly not true of all men, 
So, you right. know, which, which never particularly surprises me because because when it comes to the, the hardcore feminists, they've been legislating from the exceptions for years. So I often find they deal with men in the same way they deal with things like abortion, is they take these, these awful, awful exceptions and they create a rule using them. Exactly. And, and it, I mean, I think uh, what you get with ideologues is you get people who, who are seeking a, a kind of moral solutions in a world of moral confusion. So they like to oversimplify explanations of the causes for evil, and uh, they want to have a program for action to deal with the evils they perceive. Right. So, uh, you know, um, and it's particularly true of, of, you know, sheltered middle-class intellectuals who, who feel that the whole context of their lives has kept them away from the world of reality. So they feel a kind of concern for the underprivileged group, you know, the identity group that they identify, you know, women or the disabled or whatever it is, and so they have a solution for it. They just do not want to hear uh, about alternatives. Right, it's 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 the group of people on on university campuses now that are quite crushed that they missed 1968, and yeah. are, are are determined to uphold the ideology that flowed from it. Recreated, yes, exactly. And this idea of the, the the revolution, because they have utopian visions of a future in which the world is perfect, and it would be perfect except for these annoying <laughs> people that stand in the way of this perfection. And for feminists. Uh, it's, uh, you know, pro, pro-lifers and men and, uh, you know, the glass ceiling and all these things that stand in the way of what a perfect world it would be right. uh, if women were totally equal. And yet they never seem to achieve that equality. It doesn't matter what hurdle they, they you know, if, if, there's, if there's a female premier of a province, well, that's no good because even though there's six female premiers of provinces now, that's no good because uh, our prime minister isn't female. You know, I mean, you keep upping the ante, and uh, you, you never get perfection, but you always have to blame somebody. You're very future-oriented. Right. I've always found it a little bit ironic that Ms. Campbell wasn't good enough. I thought she'd be quite insulted. No, <laughs> I know. Um, but, but it, I mean, what, what's the difference? As, what's the difference who's in power as long as, look, it was ten premiers male premiers of provinces and an almost all-male parliament uh, that allowed the, the abortion void, you know, the lack of regulation to continue. Right. Uh, so the men in our government seem to be extremely sensitive to, to what feminists want. They listen to them. They really do listen to them. Oh, they very much do. I've always found it quite shocking at, at how much clout people like, you know, um, Joyce Arthur holds over, over people like Stephen Harper because he is quite afraid of their mouth. Um, well, the thing is, I think they have a, I think Parliament, I think uh, politicians have a, an exaggerated sense of how much power these women have. These women have a very limited range of authority. Uh, that is to the ideologues who follow them and, uh, you know, to, to, to the academy. Uh, intellectuals in the academy are, yes, they are, they are right on top of that. But if you took polls across the country, uh, they don't have the people behind them. Uh, and the proof of that is that they need funding for their status of women committees and all these feminist groups uh, have to be funded by the government because they're not funded by ordinary women. Right, oh, right. They, they would die. They would die. Uh, so, well, and that, that's a point I've often made is, is, that, is that the uh, 
people do not support Joyce Arthur's take no prisoners, you know, all abortions are a good position. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a pro-lifer, as I said, and I am in full recognition of the fact that a minority of Canadians supports my view too, which is why I believe we need to get out and have discussions with people, have debates, present science, and try to... Yeah, we have to bridge the gaps because together, like, I, I think it's better to make alliances with people who, who don't agree with you totally, but do agree with you partially, because when you... You need alliances. I mean, there's absolutely of the population believes that you know abortion is always wrong. So they're not going to make any headway if they don't make alliances with people like me who believe we need strong regulations. Agreed. But agreed. Yeah. Don't make don't make uh, the perfect the enemy of the good, right? So mm-hmm. um, we can have the good. We can't have the perfect. We're never going to have the perfect. We might as well try for the good. Right. Right. So there's one final question that I'm just interested in your position, your your perspective as a journalist, because you've been watching this debate uh, for quite a few years uh, longer than I have, even of course. And and that question is, you know, the discussion on abortion in Canada does seem to have ramped up in recent years, from you know writers such as yourself and many others in, in newspapers across Canada to you know MPs such as Stephen Woodworth, Mark Werewa, and most recently Maurice Vellacott. Um, they've really been sparking a discussion in in Parliament. And while none of those motions you know would result in laws, they do keep that. Discussion discussion alive, uh, and to even a number of pro-life groups that are emerging with new strategies uh, on the scene just in, in, the, in recent years. Uh, do you think Canada is reaching the place where we finally can actually have a mature, polite discussion on this issue? Well, looking back over what you could say 10 years ago and what you can say today, I would say we've made some progress mm-hmm. um, because you don't get smacked down. You asked me if I had you know, a lot of feedback with my columns. Right. I can tell you that when I first used to write about abortion as, hey, let's let's step back here and say it's such a wonderful thing that we don't have any law, I did used to get a lot of blowback and say, how dare you, you're against me, and all that stuff. But I noticed that the most strident voices have kind of quieted down, and I think the issue that really makes them the most uncomfortable uh, is sex selection. Right. Because... They used to say a woman should be able to have an abortion for any reason, but when they used to say it, they meant, in a, uh, you know, I can't afford it right now, or I, uh, my boyfriend uh, and I split up, or all the, the usual reasons uh, which make sense to a Western mind. But this came out of left field, that we have, um, you know, thousands and thousands of, of immigrants from countries like South Asia, you know, the South Asian countries, Pakistan, mm-hmm. India, and other countries, where a female life just does not have the same respect as a male life, right. and where the idea of aborting a, a child because of its sex seems very natural, because you're looking, you don't want to have 10 children, you want to have two, well, you want to make sure at least one, possibly, you know, hopefully two, is going to be the boy. So even amongst educated people from South Asia, you often have this attitude, well, I only want one or two children because I, you know, I am uh, educated and I want to have a career in that. Uh, So to please my husband and his family, one of them has to be a boy. So it's not like it's, it's done out of ignorance or, you know, it's often the most liberated, supposedly liberated women from these cultures that are often the culprits. So that hit them out of left field because what, what are they saying? It's okay to have an abortion for any reason, including the reason that you feel women are inferior to men. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> that's a toughie. Uh, yeah. You've got to have cognitive dissonance to approve of both those, <laughs> of, 
both those statements, yeah. uh, you can't you can't bridge it very well. And and I think it has muted the outcry of how dare you, right? Uh, you know, uh, talk about these things, and it has made it easier to get a bit of a discussion going without you know the the, the hysteria of what you used to get you know 10, 10 or 15 years ago. Right. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Barbara Kay of the National Post talking with Jonathan Van Maren of The Bridgehead. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that you'll listen again next week.